Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I'm Ed Yaka, the Director of Communications and Public Policy. Today, we return to the topic of immigration. Over the past several years, immigration policy has been a flashpoint of political controversy and human concern. Much of the attention has been focused on border issues like family separation and remain in Mexico policies. But what does immigration policy and immigration enforcement in particular mean in a non-border state like Illinois? That's what we're here to focus on today. In the spring of 2018, the Trump administration announced an aggressive campaign of immigration enforcement in a number of communities, mostly in areas where state and local government had policies of not cooperating with federal immigration authorities. This effort included the Chicago area, and over a six-day period in May 2018, ICE arrested and detained more than 100 people across the Chicago region. Within weeks, the National Immigrant Justice Center, NIJC, challenged these practices in federal court, first on behalf of two individuals who were stopped and detained, and later on behalf of others, as well as the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, and the organization Organized Communities Against Deportation, or OCAD. The ACLU also became part of this legal team. A settlement in this case, known as Castan and Nava versus Homeland Security, recently was approved by a federal judge. We're pleased to be joined by two guests today who can help us better understand the damage caused to our communities by these sorts of enforcement tactics the background of this particular lawsuit, and exactly what the settlement in the case will mean. Antonio Gutierrez is a noted immigrant rights activist in the Chicago area and works with OCAD. And Mark Fleming is the Associate Director of Litigation at NIJC. Antonio and Mark, welcome to Talking Liberties. Antonio, I wanted to start just by asking, I talked in the introduction about the fact that there were you know, more than 100 people arrested over this six-day period of this particular set of arrests. But what kind of tactics does do you see or do, does OCAD or, or others see in the community in terms of these kinds of arrests? And thank you again for the invitation today. Some of the tactics and strategies that we have seen, right, is not only are these raids or potential like opportunities for race in our community creating like chronic fear in the undocumented immigrant community. And we, of course, lived there through a lot through the Trump administration. But there's also been strategies of response towards those threats in our community as well. Uh, I remember in the first kind of years of the Trump administration, OCAD uh, put together and organized multiple Know Your Rights workshops in order for individuals to know what to do in case eyes will go and knock on their door, what to ask for in regards to a warrant be needed, what a warrant looked like so that our community was prepared for that type of conversation. But of course, the, the threat of rates in our workplace, in our home has always been there as undocumented immigrants have experienced that throughout like different administrations, even during the Obama administration, the Bush administration. And so that's been an ongoing kind of fear that has always been put on the table for the undocumented community in regards to how they go on and live in our communities and, and the type of risk or the type of interactions that they care for to have um, in order to then 
like be able to thrive and be happy in their communities. Mark, Antonio, you know, raises an important point here that, that these raids were nothing new under the Trump administration. But was there a particular feature about these raids that sort of captured your attention, you know, again, in the tactics that were used or the way they were handled that, that, that sort of caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, I think as as Antonio pointed out, like these tactics had been going on and we've been monitoring them for a long time. I think a couple of features that were particularly egregious were number one, from a publicity standpoint, these were intended to intimidate communities that had taken the you know very rational policy of saying, look, when we have state and local law enforcement, we want them to focus on protecting our communities and not be focused on immigration. So Trump, um, the Trump administration over the spring of 2018 were very explicit that they were targeting quote unquote sanctuary jurisdictions, jurisdictions that had passed laws that said, you know, we as state and local law enforcement are just not going to participate in civil immigration enforcement. So there was that aspect of it in, in a lot of bravado in some of the statements that were made by Trump officials, but then also in their press releases. But then with respect to these um, particular enforcement actions, I think on a level that we hadn't seen before, they had really targeted particularly Hispanic communities within Chicago and literally were pulling people over for driving brown with really no pretext as far as we could tell of folks that they went into a community and literally tried to stop as many people as possible to check on their immigration status. And I'm not saying that those sorts of tactics may not have had, they may have happened before, but there was something unique about these particular set of enforcement actions with the brazenness with which the racial profiling was happening. So just so our listeners understand this, Mark, when you say traffic stops, they were literally pulling people over when they were driving through their own neighborhoods. Correct, that they were driving through their own neighborhoods where ICE officials were boxing their cars in. So people pulling a car over and then pulling cars in front and behind, bringing out officers in plain clothes or with vests that just said police and immediately demanding licenses. In one case of the, the lead plaintiff, Margarito, Castaño Nava, they fingerprinted him and his the other occupant in the car without any sort of conversation or explanation for why they were pulling him over, let alone then ultimately arresting him. In fact, he wasn't aware of who these, these individuals were until he was brought down to the ICE processing center downtown in Chicago but really aggressive tactics in how they pulled um, the cars over and immediately jumping to trying to identify them for immigration violations. Antonio, you sort of mentioned this earlier, and I wonder if I can sort of come back to this point about what kind of impact that kind of enforcement has on a community. What is that like when that happens? Yes, so uh, during this set of raids and also throughout, like as I was saying, the Trump administration, especially in the beginning, we uh, received a lot of calls from community members through our hotline that we have uh, wanting to report ICE activity, right? Just identifying ICE bans that were 
kind of driving through our communities and how alarming it was for individuals to see those vans as to why they were parked on the street, why were they be driving through our main like commercial corridors in Middle Village and back of the yards in Albany Park. And so there was always that uh, component of anxiety of wanting to report what was happening for us to confirm the information and then provide updates using our social media platforms. But ultimately this overall fear really got people to either self-deport and go back to their countries of origin in some like main, minor cases that we saw. But then we also saw individuals just not leaving their homes and having to make like very direct decisions or hard decisions in regards to whether they were going to be going outside in order to get work and provide for their families or whether they could just like, or whether they wanted to just stay home in order to make sure that they weren't separated from their family because the threat and the risk of not coming back after leaving your home was always there. It's hard to even imagine the destructive kind of effect that that has on a community. Mark, I, I guess I want to ask, so for a lawsuit, why these raids as opposed to some others? Was there something special when these tactics? I think initially it was a not in our city sort of mentality. As we got into it and in talking to OCAD, talking to ICIR, another organizational plaintiff, and then going out to the jails where these people were being held, we started to peel back and started to understand really the ramifications of this. We, we at the beginning, when we decided, hey, we're going to look to see if we can't file a lawsuit very quickly, we were focused on this collateral arrest question, this idea of individuals who were not targeted by ICE, but that were encountered in the community. But it was very quickly once we spoke to people we started to really understand what the tactics were, and particularly this, as you've touched on, of literally pulling over cars at random in Hispanic neighborhoods in, in Chicago. So, Antonio, I wonder from OCAD's perspective to why you thought this was an important lawsuit to join. And then I really wonder if you could talk a little bit about how this lawsuit kind of fits into your overall strategy to end deportations altogether. Yes, yeah, so for us, when we saw this set of rates, right, as I stated, this has been a tactic being used to in a community, right, to create fear for many, many years before, even other situations before this. But the reason why we wanted to work with NIJC and other organizations into fighting this litigation really was that what, what happens when we create a sense that ICE can get away with this like these practices? What happens when we normalize the terror immigrant communities are subject uh, through ICE operations. And, and if they are allowed to get away with this, then what else are they going to be allowed to get away with? And so that was the main important like aspect of why OCAD participated and collaborated on this like litigation. The other part, right, is that we did want it to exercise a community-driven litigation strategy in regards of getting our members who most of the time are undocumented, directly impacted immigrants by the ICE operations and enforcement policies to be participant in a process of holding ICE accountable, making sure that they had a way to create a narrative and make sure that their voice of fear, of insecurity, of the instances and experiences that they lived through the community was part of the narrative and dialogue about what that looked like. That it wasn't just attorneys speaking about uh, what had happened in the situation, 
but that individuals that were directly impacted by those raids were able to speak up and create a platform for them. And that overall connects to our model of organizing and creating strategy, right? And making sure that the empowerment of undocumented immigrants is part of that organizing strategy and legal strategy that we tend to combine in order to get wins that are outside the law. Because we understand that the law, especially immigration law and policies are not just, are not fair, and that are based on other pillars of oppression like white supremacy and racism. I really do want to highlight the, the courage that OCAD as an organization showed in this. Like, let's not forget what the Trump administration was trying to do to immigration. By being a plaintiff, OCAD was opening themselves up to discovery, to depositions, to opening what they do. And I don't want that to be missed, that this was community-led um, to, to push back. Yeah, and it's so important. You know, I wonder if I can go one step further on that. And Antonio, maybe I'd start with you. Is thinking too about the courage of the actual name plaintiffs to come forward like in in a case like this in much the same way, Mark, as you were talking about with OCAD as an organization? And what does that mean in terms of really fighting back and, and having the courage to hold ICE accountable? Um, I think for us, when we see the um, understanding, right, and also within the conversations of leadership development and building the relationship with the individuals that we work with, um, that there's always a conversation around the vulnerability of the risk that that will take, uh, but also a conversation about how this might be able to impact how other undocumented immigrants want to interact with ICE, how they might want to also speak up around what they have experienced with ICE or the terrorization that they have experienced. And, And overall, right, when we get hundreds of calls reporting these ICE raids, reporting that these activities are happening in our community, we have to respond. And and what better way to respond than by allowing those directly impacted to lead that process and to lead that narrative. I think that in in regards to like the risk that we have in getting arrested or detained by raids or by ICE jails targeting our communities, there's always gonna be this understanding, right? That people still need to go out into the world they need to go and find jobs. They need to fight and survive other systems besides the immigration system that are being put in place or that are oppressing them, such as the oppression of ICE, right? And also capitalism and the surviving under this economic system that unfortunately does not see undocumented immigrants as equals uh, mm-hmm. regarding residents and citizens and creates a targeted community for exploitation of labor under this economic system. Mark, do you have thoughts about the courage of the name plaintiffs in this instance? I mean, I think it's it's quite remarkable, to be honest, because again, it's hard at the moment to place oneself back in 2018 in what the atmosphere of fear was. You know, in talking to them, they were just frankly outraged at what happened to them. And and they stood up with real risk of retaliation, particularly under, you know, the prior administration. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think at NHIC, we try very hard to provide wraparound service to our named plaintiffs. So in this case, we represent in their immigration proceedings, all of the named plaintiffs, except for one who already had prior counsel. But, you know, that's that's as far as we can go. There still is the courage that needs to, to come from the person. And, you know, frankly, all, all of our, our plaintiffs have been quite remarkable in that regard. 
And you think about the right, the, the 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 courage of both the name plaintiffs and OCAD and ICER to put themselves forward in this way is really remarkable. Antonio, you wanted to add something else? Yes, I wanted to add a little bit of the history of where OCAD like comes from, right? Many of the yeah. co-founders of OCAD uh, also were part of the Immigrant Youth Justice League, which here in Chicago was an undocumented youth-led organization that created the Coming Out of the Shadows event on March 10 of 2010. That the first one was here in Chicago where seven undocumented immigrants came out as undocumented and for the first time publicly, we have narratives and storytelling regarding what the undocumented experience and identity looks like, right? And so from that moment on, we continue to put together that annual event of coming out of the shadows and later on it became a national movement that changed and shifted the power dynamics of what immigrant justice movement looked like in the United States. And, and out of that, that value, right, of making sure that we are empowering people as they're dealing with those crises and to be courageous in order to empower other immigrants, it's been a component of not just this litigation, but any of our organizing work that we have done over the years. Yeah, and the discussion writ large across the country, it, it, it really is such an important element. So Mark, you got a settlement then in this case out of the Department of Homeland Security. We should just talk for a second about like, what are the elements of that settlement? Like, what does it require? Yeah, so so there's a couple pieces of it that are now nation are going to be nationwide, and then some aspects of it that are specific to the ICE Chicago field office. And Despite its name, actually, the ICE Chicago field office covers six states, which is Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Kansas, and Missouri. So there are specific remedies available to individuals who may be arrested in violation of the settlement um, for those states over the next three years. So the main piece of it is this new nationwide policy. And in that nationwide policy, ICE has agreed through our negotiations and with our organizational plaintiffs and, and named plaintiffs to establish a new policy as to when um, they can make warrantless arrests and um, specific documentation requirements um, when making warrantless arrests and, and vehicle stops that lead to warrantless arrests. And in particular, under the Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the main immigration law at the federal level, ICE is only allowed to make warrantless arrests when not only do they have probable cause that a non-citizen is removable from the United States, but also probable cause that the individual is likely to escape before a warrant could be obtained for the arrest. And so the policy then lays out and it's attached to the settlement, which was approved by the district court judge here on February 8th. But the policy then lays out some factors that ICE, the ICE officer needs to look at, including community ties. So for example, if an individual has a home or employment or family, these are all factors that mitigate against them having probable cause to make a warrantless arrest. And so in, in instances where those are available, many times they should not be making an arrest at all, and they would need to then decide if they're going to take future enforcement action against that individual at a later date. But if they do make a warrantless arrest, they then need to be documenting that on what's called an I-213. It's a, it's a form, an ICE form for um, how they document arrests, and they need to specifically 
document certain aspects of the arrest, including were there community ties? Was the arrest in a home? And was it in a place of employment? Was the person an employee of the place of employment? Was it in a vehicle? All of these sorts of factors. So they need to describe circumstances of arrest so that if there was a violation, we can seek a remedy. Similarly, with respect to vehicle stops, ICE officers no longer can say that they're, it's very clear that they, are, they have no authority for enforcing state and local traffic laws. So the policy is right. very clear and that they can't state to the individual that they're stopping them because of state or local traffic laws. And then likewise, like in the context of warrantless arrests as well, they need to have a reasonable suspicion that an individual in the car is without authorization to be in the United States. And if they do end up making an arrest, that they have to document that as well on the what's called the I-213, which is the arrest form. So that's nationwide, should go into effect in about six months. And the reason being is, is we are now negotiating with them the specific training materials that will then every ICE officer nationwide will be trained on it. First, the ICE Chicago field office within 45 days, and then nationwide within 180 days, so about six months. Can I ask a couple of quick follow-ups on the, mm -hmm. on the national policy itself? Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that what you're really expecting as the result of this national policy is a, a significant reduction or use of warrantless arrests and tactics like traffic stops. Is that really the goal of those policies? Yes, I think absolutely. Because the reality is, is how ICE has done its enforcement has been to just ignore the, the limitations on those policies. The, this limitation on their warrantless arrest authority has existed for decades. But we know as a matter of practice that ICE never follows it. As a matter right. of policy, they, they're not trained on it. And so basically, our, our expectation is, is that quote unquote collateral arrest individuals who are just swept up because they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that disproportionately those arrests should no longer occur. Sure. And likewise, okay. vehicle stops unless they have a clear target that they've been monitoring for some reason. Yeah. And there are other elements then of the settlement. I should let you continue. Yeah, so the other elements of the settlement are mostly on the local level or at the field office level, which are um, as soon as the training starts on a monthly basis for going on for three years, we as class counsel will receive the I-213s, these arrest forms for anyone that is warrantlessly arrested within the Northern District of Illinois, which is about the top third of the state and incorporates the entire Chicago land area. Separately from that, in the event that there is a warrantless arrest that occurs within the state, the six state region that I mentioned, that if it's in violation of the settlement or the, the nationwide policy, that we as class counsel can go to the court and seek the release of that individual, or if they've already bonded out to get their bond money back. We also, it would then require remedial measures against the ICE officer that violated the policy. And in the event of more systemic violations, we can go to the court and seek even more remedies yet to be determined, depending on what those systemic violations are. So this issue of the release and, and or getting someone's bond returned, I, I just that, that is a prospective thing 
heading forward over the next three years, you're going to be able to look at these arrests and then determine whether or not there are steps that could be taken to either get someone released who's being detained if they were arrested with a warrantless arrest or to get their bond money back. Correct. And it is prospective. And I wonder if I could ask sort of a generic question then, because it covers six states and because of of that perspective piece, you aren't just remedying a wrong, you're actually changing a policy moving forward. How significant is this settlement in the context of the way that ICE has sort of been held the task in the past? I think it's it's quite substantial for the the issues that it addresses because as I flagged, you know, for for almost eighty years now they've had this limitation on their warrantless arrest authority, and yet I am not aware of them ever following the limits of their warrantless arrest authority. And so these at large in the community arrests, I guess I'm cautiously hopeful will fundamentally change how they proceed in their enforcement uh, in the community. Antonio, from the perspective of OCAD, when you hear these details or as you went through them as part of the settlement process, what did you guys think? Yeah, we thought that like the settlement did really well in regards to creating uh, processes, right, for the community to still hold ICE accountable to this settlement. And I think that that's a great victory that we have not seen in other like similar litigation or even campaigns that we have done. I think the idea that there's not going to be any more collateral arrests is great, right? Because many of our public campaigns, even prior to 2018, were about individuals that were detained as collateral arrests. Even in, in, in cases where multi-unit buildings in Albany Park, ICE will come and start knocking on everybody's door without really looking for anybody, without targeting anybody other than targeting a multi-unit building where they knew immigrants like we're living and then arresting individuals where we highlighted those public campaigns and always knowing that I didn't have the right to properly do this. But even then when highlighting these cases, it wasn't part of the narrative of how we hold ICE accountable. Even though those policies were already in place, it was really hard to get them to be implemented or to advocate for the individual's release by using those protections or those policies that they needed to follow. Now we have another tool that not only are we going to be in tune with what their activities in is within a month, right? Uh, but that we're going to be able to work with those individuals, hopefully, and be able to carry on what their demand might be, whether it's release or whether there's anything else that we could potentially do, and still highlight that ICE needs to be limited in how they carry on their operations, as many of those practices are inhumane. And we want them to change. We need them to modify them in order to really create a narrative and dialogue of how we fix the current issues with our immigration system. Without that, our community is always a threat of deportation, of being in detention, and we need to kind of get over that that fear and and over that uh, potential possibility in order to really create that dialogue with those directly impacted and to come with solutions and alternatives to the current system that we have. And I wonder, uh, Antonio, Are you, you know, OCAD is doing some outreach to let people know about this settlement and and help in terms of that, all the the process you've just described moving forward. And I wonder what, you know, what steps you're taking to do that work. 
Yes, of course, COVID has changed how community organizing is like done for now, right? But uh, we already made a, a webinar. Uh, we did a virtual kind of press conference slash webinar where we did announce many of these points that we're discussing today and started highlighting it on our social media platforms, both of OCAD and ISER, right? Which do have a large following of not only undocumented immigrants, but also their allies and other individuals in our communities. So we are informing them. I think in the future we do foresee, especially as we're gonna start getting some of these reports and the settlement goes into implementation level, as Mark was saying, in hopefully six months time, that there will be other moments of community education around this settlement, around how it's changing, how ICE can interact with our community and hoping that individuals can learn about the settlement so that they can hopefully exercise their rights whenever they come into contact or into any type of situation where they come into contact with ICE agents as a whole. Mark, I wonder if you're, you know, you, you've mentioned a couple of times that this, you know, prohibition against warrantless uh, arrests or, or limitations on warrantless arrests has existed for decades and not always been followed. Are you concerned after the three years that maybe without the enforcement mechanism that, you know, we could slide right back into the same system? It's certainly possible. And I, I'm, 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 I'm under no illusions that just because we have a settlement that a bureaucracy is going to be able to change overnight in the, the patterns of enforcement that occurred. And so I, I really kind of view the settlement as the starting point. Really, it's going to be how successful are we over the next three years of identifying violations and bringing them to a front so that we can change the culture of how they do enforcement in the interior. It's not as if, I, I should flag, it's not as if this nationwide policy just disappears after right. three years. It should remain in place. Now, you know, who knows? Next administration could rescind it. But once it's out there, we can go back to it at some point, if even if the worst case scenario happens and it rescind, gets rescinded somehow by an administration. And I think something else to flag is, is built into um, the settlement is a, a recognition by ICE that after that six months of training, that the policy can be used for bringing litigation in other parts of the country in the event that there are violations. And so... You know, our hope is not only that we can change the culture of ICE enforcement within the ICE Chicago field office, but also with allies around the country, can we can we change the culture nationwide so that so that we don't go back? Do you think there are regional offices in other places where just the threat of a lawsuit, given this settlement, might bring a change in behavior? It's possible. I think what's challenging about ICE is, is they, as an institution, do not have very strong control of their field offices at the federal level. This has always been a problem. I'm not sure it's unique to ICE, but it feels very problematic at ICE that I think it, it would really kind of depend on the field office and who the directors are at any given field office. But it would be hopeful that, you know, they would recognize the threat of litigation and the fact that there is this settlement as grounds to try and seek corrective act in short of another lawsuit. Antonio, as we, we sort of move to close here, I, I wonder, like, what do you see as the next step? What's the next thing that you and OCAD would like to see on the immigration front? What should we all be thinking about and working towards to make this a more humane system? 
Yeah, just as Mark was saying, we also as OCAD see this as like an initial step, right? To not only limit and highlight ice operations and how they carry out in our community and how unfair and unjust those practices are, um, but it's also uh, a continuation of projects that is okay, we already are doing besides this litigation, right? We already have another litigation against ICE around the Citizens Academy that they wanted to put together in Chicago in 2020. We actually filed a public FOIA requesting many of the documentation for the Citizens Academy curriculum and information, and we were denied that information, even though we are under the rights of ICE being a public entity, that the public should be able to receive those documents and that information. And so the fact that we are having to use litigation just to be able to convince ICE to provide us those documents to get on the table with us and negotiate is unfortunate, but it's also a tool for our, our organizing that is used as a tactic, right? To provide, as I was saying, that voice, that platform for individuals that are directly impacted to be able to file those lawsuits, to be able to file that litigation against entities like ICE that we tend to think, right? Especially as undocumented immigrants that we have seen how institutions are, are not created there to protect us, but on the contrary, many of the times are created to detain us and to oppress us that we have power within those conversations and within that narrative. And giving that power to the undocumented community as the settlement does is only the beginning to take more more courageous risk and to be able to take on more risk to not only limit those practices of ICE, but eventually what does the narrative look like about defunding ICE as an entity to abolish ICE? And these three years are going to be key for us to continue to push that narrative and continue to understand what our community wants to do in order to what they believe should happen with ICE in our communities and how we uh, how we like uh, disjournalize or abolish that organization. Well, Antonio and Mark, thank you so, so much for coming and joining us today and talking about this. I think these kinds of settlements look complex in legalese, but both of you have really helped to kind of make this real. So we really appreciate your time and uh, and thanks for being with us. And we will, uh, I'm sure, follow up on this down the road. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let me thank Antonio Gutierrez, an immigration advocate at OCAD, and Mark Fleming, the Associate Director of Litigation at NIJC, for joining us today. We really are grateful for your time. You can learn more about this case, as well as more about NIJC and OCAD, on our website at aclu-il.org. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. This program is produced by the ACLU of Illinois, and our content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. The executive director of the ACLU of Illinois is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll see you soon.